I met my wife in uh, 1992 at Manchester College, and we were actually a part of a small group that uh, became a Bible study. Now, I wasn't so much into the Bible study, but I was into the ladies. And uh, so all the ladies went to the Bible study, and so I thought, well, I'll just go there also and give me a Bible. I'll read whatever to, you know, find the next person in my life. And uh, so while I was there, um, I met Jen, and she had a boyfriend, and I had a girlfriend, but I was into her so much that I was like, hey, let's just, like, be together. And she's like, nah, 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 nah. And so I kind of got barred uh, from that a little bit, and I wasn't so sure what was going on, but I had interest in her. She just didn't have any interest in me. No, it's hard for you to believe that, but uh, it's true. So uh, as we left for school for the, the summer, uh, we said goodbye, and during that summer, I broke up with my girlfriend, and little uh, known to me, she had broke broken up with her boyfriend. And so uh, she sent me a, a letter uh, two weeks before school started, and she concluded the letter by saying, love ya, Jen. Now, isn't it interesting how males and females will translate that? For me, love ya, Jen, meant this woman is all about me, you know? For Jen, love you, Jen, meant let's be friends. So we came back that fall, and we got to uh, know each other a little bit better, and I was doing everything, all the lines, all the moves that I could for her to have interest, and she finally said she'd go out on a date with me. And so we went out with one date and then another date, and it was going, you know, amazingly well. But the thing is, she grew up in a family that was not very touchy-feely or expressing kind of love. And so I wasn't sure she was into me at all, and it had been like three or four months. And so finally, uh, in January of 1993, I got ready to leave to go to uh, India for a month. And just before I got ready to leave, she gave me this. Now, I don't have very many prized possessions that I keep, but this is the highest one that I have. And this is what she did. She gave this to me and she said, I want you to know that for the last month, I've been writing down scriptures and quotes and then little phrases to let you know that I love you. I know I don't say very much, you know, in words and, you know, touchy-feely kind of things, but here it is. And so when she gave it to me, I like opened it up and I'm like, I'll just read the whole thing right now. You know, India is a lot trip, a long trip. And she said, no, 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 I want you to take your time. And so every morning I would wake up, and I had never received something like this before. I didn't know people did this kind of thing. And every day of the trip, I would open it up, and there would be something that would say, Chris, just let yourself know how much God loves you. Let God know that I love you. I want to encourage you, build him up, God, do whatever you can. And regularly, I'll still turn to this uh, when I'm going through some tough times. Well, when I got back from India, I walked off the plane, and this was when you could be in the terminal, and I walked uh, off the plane, and I had this in my hand, and uh, I said, hey, thank you so much for this. I said, so does this mean you're kind of into me? 
And she goes, I guess. And uh, then she gave me a kiss. And when she gave me that kiss, it was the beginning of transformation for our relationship because that woman has not been able to keep her hands off of me since then. Just joking, just joking. Not really. But anyways, uh, so hey, today what I want to talk about is how we reset our marriages. And I know for some of you, you might be single, you might be dating, you're engaged, maybe you went through a painful divorce and you might be like, oh man, really like a teaching on marriage. But I think what you'll understand, regardless of what relationship you're in, where we're going to drive this thing is to help us not talk about so much marriage itself, but oneness in marriage. And how can you, as a married person, a single person, a divorced person, how do you create oneness in your relationships? Now, uh, to be able to do this, I'd like to uh, begin by having us kind of look at our um, uh, big idea this morning. And uh, this is what it is. Um, oh, I, I, let, me, let me share something first. What I want to do is have you look at this big idea through the lens of Genesis 2, chapter 24, or chapter 2, verse 24. And this is what it said at the beginning of time with relationships. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And they will, what's the next two words? Yeah, they actually become one. Now, uh, I want to give you a graphic that will come up throughout this time of what oneness kind of looks like. Um, whenever you're dating someone and you're a part of that experience, uh, you come with your own family story. But as you begin to date and you get to know each other a little bit more, there is a, a way in which you actually start to leave that story and you create your own story. You actually start becoming one. And so there's this image where both of you now are saying, it's not just about me and my family story, but how is it that I can draw in and become one? How can I be connected to that oneness? Now, the reason why oneness is so important to God is because the reality is God kind of created a concept that the world had not known before that one true God came. Before the God of the Bible, there was this concept called polytheism. There were multiple gods and everybody worshipped the sun or the moon or whatever, but there wasn't a concept of one God. And we learn in Deuteronomy 6.4 this passage. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now what's interesting is this word one is the Hebrew word which means ahad. So you want to be able to be smart with your friends? Let's all say it together. Uh, the word is one, and the word is ahad. One, two, three. Ahad. Yeah. And so this concept of ahad is this concept of being whole. No brokenness, no splintering, no kind of, you know, a, uh, a brokenness whatsoever. No fracturing. It's a sense of you are becoming one. And he says, not only do I want that in your relationships, but I want you to know that as the God of the universe, I am one God. I am not multiple gods. I am one. Even in the Trinity, it tells us um, three in one. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they live in community as one. And so this is what we kind of want to go after 
this morning is how can we create oneness in our marriages and in our other relationships as God has shown this to us. Now, uh, the way we're going to focus, like I said, is looking through the lens of marriage, of how does this oneness kind of come about? Because it's all about becoming one. You see, when Jennifer and I got married uh, on July 23rd, 1994, we told to everyone around us that we would, had become one. But we really weren't one. We were just becoming one. And that's why you should keep dating even once you're married, folks. Now, for some of you, you haven't went on a date in a long time. So this is what you need to do. You're becoming one. And the fighting for oneness in marriage is so important because I want all marriages to win, all relationships to win. So here's kind of our big idea that we're going to go after this morning, and it's this. Marriage is a journey of fighting for oneness. You literally have to have a fight if you're going to win in this relationship. Now, it's funny because most marriages have fights. The problem is they don't fight for oneness. They fight for two-ness. I want my way. I want my own thing. But the whole concept is how do we fight for oneness? Now, uh, this is kind of the example. Uh, and in marriage, the biblical image is that we actually submit to one another. We get on our knees and we serve the other person. We put the other person's need above ourselves. We're trying this concept of how do we become one. And the reality is I want oneness to win out in our community as a church. That's why we have small groups. Because we think when you become connected in a small group, your oneness grows within the midst of that. And so uh, that is such a key for every single one of us, whatever the relationship is. Single, divorced, married, single again. How do I work towards oneness? So how do we do this? Well, the first way that you kind of fight for this oneness um, is you name your ideal. You actually name what is the ideal, what is the focus of what our marriage is. What is God's kind of ideal for your marriage, for your relationship? Now, I know that there are many marriages that they never know what the ideal is. They have no concept. Now they know what other people's ideal is. They know what their parents' ideal is. They know what maybe a friend's ideal is and what their marriage is. But they themselves do not have kind of an ideal. So do you know what is the ideal in your marriage? Now maybe you're here and you're dating. If you're dating someone, guess what? You've got to figure this out. You've got to figure it out before you get married. What is their ideal for family? What is their ideal for a schedule? What is their ideal for values for the church? You do this by taking time and sitting down. If you're dating, you're so infatuated that you have to have honest conversations that you pull back and you ask yourself, like, what is your ideal? What do you want our marriage to be about? And folks, when you do this, Relationships become healthier. Now, 
When was the last time, those of you that are married, that you actually sat down and said, what is the ideal of our marriage? What is the focus? What is central? Because I'm telling you, if you want your marriage to be healthy, it's critically important that you have that conversation. So, how do we fight for oneness? We name our ideal. Secondly, we name our desire. We actually name what our desire is. How many of you have ever heard of a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. And uh, I'm telling you, this is good reading, especially if you're married. It's like some good stuff. So the story, basically, uh, this guy writes these songs, these kind of poems to his bride. His name's Solomon, and he was a king. And he writes about his relationship with his bride. And actually, it was kind of erotic and sensual. In fact, uh, Jewish little boys and Jewish little girls were never able to read this part of Scripture because it was too much. So, check out just a piece of this powerful poetry that's in Song of Solomon, chapter 4. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Sounds like a country song, doesn't it? You know? Love it. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming from the washing. Now, doesn't that sound sexy? Not so much, does it? But back in the day when Solomon was writing this, this was like Barry White and Justin Timberlake lyrics. Okay? I mean, this was the stuff. So husbands, or if you're dating, you know, you might just come up and say something like this. Hey, babe, your hair is like a flock of goats. Hey, babe, I just want you to know that your teeth are like a flock of sheep, you know? Don't try that. It won't work. But anyways, now, this is what I want you to see in this Bible passage, is that God understood the importance of oneness and desire between people who are married. And he wanted there to be this sense of it. And so you have this beauty of this man being so transparent of how much he loves and the the beauty of his wife. And, And the woman then comes back and says, how beautiful the groom is. Now, here's my question for those of you who are married. When was the last time you wrote a love note to your spouse? When was the last time you pulled back and you actually wrote something down about how much you value them, how much you care for them, how much you really think that their eyes are beautiful, that their personality turns you on? When was the last time that you stepped back and you wrote about something? Because the key to marriage, folks, is honoring and reminding the person how special they are to you. Now, one part of the marriage relationship is sex. And sexual desire is something that, unfortunately, in our culture has become very animalistic. Uh, no longer do we see, you know, the sense of love between a husband and wife, but we have 50 shades of that, and I've got some 50 shades of this, and all of a sudden we got so many shades, it gets very dark and we're not sure. And the reality is, 
Before God created human beings, his pinnacle, he created animals. And what do we know about animals? They cannot control their desires. They see something, they go for it. They want it, they go after it. Their desires, they cannot control. For example, we had a cat growing up named Misty. And this cat, Misty, all the time, I don't know what it was, but she was always getting pregnant. I mean, every four months, she was getting pregnant. And finally, I think part of it was she was listening to too much, you know, JT, Justin Timberlake. And, you know, all of a sudden it got her excited and, and that was it. So one day I pulled Misty aside and I started petting her. I said, girl, you got to stop doing this kind of stuff. And you know what happened four months later? She had another litter of kittens. And she just didn't do that. Now, here's the point. And some of you might be going, I hope you're coming to one. You know, I, I, I really do. Here's the point, though. A cat cannot control its desires. Its desires control it. Let me say that again. A cat cannot control its desires. Its desires control it. For a cat, they get in heat and stuff just happens. And the reality is, folks, that we see it in our culture more and more all the time. People being animalistic with that area that God reserved for marriage, especially in that part of their life. But there's another group. So you have these people who are animalistic, and that's just what they understand for sexual drive and desire. But we have another group over here, and I call them the angels. And the angels are the ones who just never talk about anything that is that S word. Because they feel shameful, they feel guilt, they never talk about it. Or maybe they had some painful experiences from their past and they just never do it. And this is what the society is trying to tell us. Either be animalistic and that's what a relationship's about, or you have to be an angel and you ignore and you avoid and you never talk about it whatsoever. But biblical intimacy is neither one of those extremes. It is about placing another person above yourself and yet you're honest with the desires that you have within the person. Look at what 1 Peter 3, 7 says. It says these words. In the same way, you husbands must give what? What's it say? What's the word? Honor. We honor them. And then treat your wife with understanding as you live together. And that's what biblical intimacy is about. As one person's honoring the other one, the other one is trying to be respectful and kind. And there's this mutual submission that takes place between them. And that's where true intimacy is required and where it takes place. Now, uh, Jesus himself uh, never really talked about uh, sexual desire so much. But Paul, the guy who wrote close to half of the New Testament, did. You see... Uh, You may not know this, Paul was single, and so you might be like, well, why was he talking about this? Because when he went out and he planted different churches throughout the Near East, one of the things that he found is that couples were struggling with the whole issue of sexual desire within their marriages, just like today. And so he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, getting down to the questions you ask in your letter to me, first, it Is it a good thing to have sexual relationships? Certainly. 
but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual desires are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. When we say that our culture so often, it looks like sexual disorder. The married bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if both of you agree to it. And if it's not for the purposes of prayer or fasting, but only for such time. Then you come back together to get again. And then look at this. Look at this. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not understand commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. So we don't skim over the parts of the Bible that, uh, you know, are difficult. We talk about them. And the reality is, what is Paul saying in the midst of this? He's saying, even in your sexual relationship with your spouse, you've got to fight for oneness. You've got to fight for it. Because there is evil that is everywhere that is constantly trying to put it down. Now, in this auditorium uh, this morning, uh, there are some of you who really want intimacy in your relationship. You want there to be a sense that the person knows my heart. And as much as you're trying to go towards that person, they're avoiding that. And you never really feel like there's a real heart connection. And so what the enemy says is, well, if you're not getting that intimate heart connection with your spouse, then I'll tempt you to go to a chat room. And you go to this chat room online on your computer and you see that there's this friend from high school or college or you're on Facebook and all of a sudden you get this sense of like, hey, what I'm not getting from the person who should be getting this to me, I'm going to receive it somewhere else. And then emotional affairs happen all the time. Other people have a very high sexual drive and they have this sense for connection in a physical way, but they're not getting it from their partner. And so in the midst of this, what transpires is there's this real kind of struggle that a person has. Well, if I can't have it there, I'll go on a computer and I'll experience it there, whether it's porn or something else, and I'll make that relationship. And in both of those, the evil one wins because he gets us away from the concept of oneness. And when oneness begins to break up like that, It gets fractured and broken, and it hurts so many people down that path. Folks, I'm telling you, if you can't name the desires in your marriage, then how are you ever going to be healthy in that area of your life? Because the couples that are the best couples that I know, they're very open and honest about this, and they fight for it. A couple of months ago, we were at my parents' house, and we're in the kitchen, And uh, all of a sudden, I notice my dad walks up to my mom, and he does this. And he just, like, grabbed her tushy a little bit. And I, you know, I look at this, and I'm like, ugh. 
And I said, Dad, you shouldn't be doing this. And then I'll, I'll not forget, he turned around and he said, I might be old, but I ain't dead. And at first, again, I was like, I'm not sure if people in their 80s should be doing this. You know, like, this shouldn't happen. And then all of a sudden I thought, you know, it's kind of awesome, actually. They've been married 62 years, and there's this sense that they still have a desire for one another. And they have no problem showing their emotion. Uh, they, you know, kiss each other all the time. And my uh, two girls sometimes are like, Grandma and Grandpa, get a room, you know. And uh, But they have this very openness to show their desire and their love for one another. And it's such a beautiful thing to kind of see and something that our culture needs to see more and more. So, if you're going to fight for oneness, you've got to name your ideal, you've got to name your desire, and then finally, you've got to name your discernment. How do you discern? How do you grow in the midst of that to discern this concept of oneness? Now, to answer this question, I want us to look at an Old Testament story in 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're not going to read it. You can uh, do it as homework this week, though. Just circle it, and you can read the story yourself. But it's basically about a story about a very wealthy man who is kind of a mayor of uh, his village. His name was Nabal, and uh, Nabal was extremely wealthy. There was another guy in this story by the name of David. And David actually uh, wasn't king yet, but he was growing a group of people who were soldiers, and he was kind of the commander of them. And so one day, David comes to the outside of this village, and he is hanging out there. And as part of this, he kind of protected the village for Nabal. So one day, David's men get very, very hungry, and they're like, what are we going to do? We don't have any food here. And so he tells one of his servants, well, why don't you go into the village and ask the rich man if he would give us some food? So the servants walk up to him and say, hey, you know, uh, we're so grateful you've given us a place outside and uh, we've kind of been protecting. And so, you know, you got any grub? Like, do you have anything for us to eat? And Nabal, this powerful man, looks at him and says, you're not getting squat. And he kicks them out and he hurls these insults at him. So these guys go back to uh, David and he says, well, what did they say? And he said, well, he's not going to give us any food. And he insulted us and he insulted you too. And at that point, David is a powerful man. And he says, that's it. We're going to go take them out. Are you kidding me? He's treating us like that when we've been protecting his city. And so they get their swords, they get ready to destroy the village. Now here's what happens. As they're heading towards the village to destroy it all, Nabal's wife, Abigail, looks at it and she goes, Oh my gosh, he did it again. My husband did it again. He just ignored and he was only thinking about himself. So she runs in and she gets all this food and everything that she can gather, and she runs to David, who soon would be the king, and says, I'm so sorry. Uh, we did not show you hospitality for protecting us. I'm so sorry. My husband was wrong. But please, please, don't destroy the village. We'll give this to you. And David received all of the food. He took it back to his man, 
to his men and all was well. Now, when she goes back to the village, Nabal's been having a party and they're all like wasted and drunk and she has discernment. And this is what she thinks. If I say anything to him now, he's not going to hear it at all. So she waits until he sleeps it off and the next morning she goes to him and tells him exactly what happened and how she had saved the village. And her name was Abigail. And she is a powerful, powerful woman within the story. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because there are times within a relationship, especially within marriage, that you don't always know how to fight for oneness when you have to confront the person or there has to be a difficult transaction or message that needs to be there. You see, Abigail used great discernment. She wanted to save her husband in the village, but she chose not to do it at the worst time to tell him about it. She waited until he was sober and he could hear the message. And she showed great discernment. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but I have not always shown great discernment in my marriage. I know it's a shock to some of you, uh, but uh, I haven't. I remember very early on when we were married, we were at her parents' house, and uh, all of a sudden I started critiquing her cooking in front of her parents. How do you think that went? Not good, not good, not good at all. So I'm just going to give you some free advice. Never critique your wife or never critique your husband in front of their parents, okay? It is not good. But let me ask you this. Have you ever done that? Have you, if you're married or maybe you're dating or you're with someone, have you ever critiqued? Have you ever not practiced good discernment within the person? Folks, there are moments where discernment is required if you're going to be able to celebrate the gift of oneness in marriage. You have to know, when can my spouse hear this? For example, one thing that I learned over time is that with Jennifer, uh, it is never good to share some kind of sensitive issue if she's tired or if we're getting ready to go to sleep. Because she's a morning person, and by the time she gets to the end of the day, she's done. And so I've had to learn to talk about it during the day and to do it in such a way that it's not when she's exhausted. So let me just tell you, whatever the best time is for your spouse, not for you, but for your spouse, choose discernment to have those conversations then. Because if you don't choose discernment at the right time, you will have a tendency to hurt and wound and damage the other person. And it was all because you didn't practice discernment. It doesn't matter what the conversation is. Now, some people uh, in marriage, they never have those difficult conversations. That's not smart either. We just hide it. We sweep it under the... No, no, no. You've got to have the conversations, but have discernment enough to do it at the best time. Folks, you have to have a discernment radar on if you're going to be in a healthy relationship and fight for oneness. Because this is the reality, folks. We all have a little crazy in us. Every single one of you do, including the guy on the stage. We all have a little crazy. There's a behavior. There's a habit. There's a thought process that's just a little bit crazy. 
Every person you meet has some crazy in them. Now, some of you have more than others, okay? Uh, we know who you are. Now, here is the key to dating or picking a spouse. You need to find out, here it is, you need to find somebody who's crazy you can live with, okay? That's how you pick in a dating relationship. Can I live with their crazy? And when you wake up in the morning, uh, you're like, I don't have to fix them. I don't have to change them. They just have a little bit of crazy in them. And I know they're crazy. And I'm crazy. And I actually have learned to love Jennifer's crazy. I mean, when it comes to cleaning, for instance, I mean, she cleans in ways that even God doesn't clean, you know? But I've had to learn, like, that's just kind of her crazy. And so I just let her clean, you know? And I used to always feel guilty, and we'd have these fights, and I'm like, one of her crazies, they, uh, like the, the family she grew up in, they did baseboards every Saturday morning cleaning them. You know what we did every Saturday morning? Watch cartoons. That's two different crazies. So I've got my own crazy too. Sometimes I'm not very motivated. And she's like, come on, you got to do something here. And so you deal with the crazy of where it's at. And then you say, I'm not going to change the person. I'm not going to fix them. I'm going to allow God to use me to bring healing to their life. And when that happens, you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like, I gotta fix them, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. And so, you are able to discern what's best for them. So, you name the ideal, you name their desire, you name your discernment, and then finally, you name your mission. Do you have a mission as a couple? Do you know what that mission is? Do you wake up in the morning and you're like, on a mission together. Sometimes it may be together, sometimes it may be separate, but do you know what that mission is? When you think of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, what couple do you think showed the greatest kind of focus of mission? Because it's kind of hard, because if you think about it, Jesus was single, Paul was single, so who was it? Well, there's a a couple in Acts 18 called Aquila and Priscilla, who I think modeled what it means to be on mission as a couple. They were in Rome, and they were kicked out of Rome because of their religious uh, persecution. Because one day a Caesar kind of came and said, I'm done with Christianity. It's a sect of Judaism, but I'm done because there's somebody in this city who's drawing up and talking about this Jesus, that he's God's son, and it's creating all kinds of issues for me. And so he kicked out all the Christians and all the Jews. And so Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers, and they come to a town called Corinth, and they actually become uh, uh, kind of a startup business for tent making. And every day they're making tents, they're making tents. Until finally they see a guy by the name of Paul, and they're like, hey, why don't you come and do this with us? And they give him a job, they invite them into her house. Well, they find out this Paul guy was the guy who was calling all the uprisings in Rome. And now all of a sudden he's here. And they're like, you're the one? And, and, and uh, he's like, yeah, I am. And so he starts teaching them about the love of Christ and what it is. And they're on mission. And he says, i got to go start some more churches. But I want you to start one in your house. And then you take care of Corinth. And this couple gives their whole life to impacting the kingdom of Christ because they were on mission together. 
And how do I know they were so valuable? Because if you go to the end of the book of Romans or the end of 1 Corinthians, in both of those, what we find is Paul thanking them for everything that they had done for him. So let me ask you as a couple, do you know your mission? Are you on a mission together? Do you know what that experience is? You know, the cool thing about our church is that we have many couples who have chosen to be on mission together. Uh, you saw one today, uh, Bree and Killian. They're opening themselves up for a small group so that people can come and grow closer to Christ. And there are many couples in our church that do that, and they're on a mission together. There's other people who work at Celebrate Recovery as couples on Tuesday nights to be able to help people who have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. I know of people who go on mission trips as a couple to be able to be on mission together. People go to the community basket where twice a month we serve hundreds and hundreds of people to show them God's love. And then couples that come together and they say, hey, we'll cook for the student ministry of impact. But do you know what I know also? I know that there are some couples that have no concept whatsoever what it is to be on mission together. They don't know what the other person brings. They don't see the gifts in what they can do. It doesn't matter uh, if you have the exact same passion. Jennifer and I sometimes have separate. But the reality is we're encouraging and building the other person up so that they can grow in this mission together. So let me ask you, those of you who are married or dating, do you know what your mission is? Do you know what it is? Because it's going to take fight. It's going to take grit for you to be able to do it. You see, folks, this is what kind of happens, and we'll bring up a graphic again, what happens. And I guarantee it's for some marriages in this place today. One of you is working your tail off to try to create this oneness in your marriage, and the other person is not doing their part at all. And then maybe on the other side, the other person is working towards intimacy. They're doing whatever, and there's not this sense of oneness. And the whole point of oneness, when you fight for it, is its mutual submission. I put the other person above myself, and how do I care and love them in the midst of that? Now, I know some of you are sitting there right now, and you're like, oh, you're talking about marriage, but you're a preacher boy. And we know those pastors, they always have, like, the best marriages. I mean, I bet for you, marriage is so easy, Chris. I bet it's just a, you know, a cakewalk for you. But I have real issues, Chris, but maybe not you. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I never asked my father-in-law if I could take his daughter to be my wife because you know why? He would say no. And they hated me. They did not like me at all. They thought I was going to mess up their little girl's whole doctor world uh, together. And so for nine months, my mother-in-law didn't even talk to my wife. It was only several weeks before we got married, before our wedding day, that that kind of resolved itself. We've struggled big time within the midst of this. When we first got married, we lived in two separate locations. I lived in Flora, Indiana. She lived in Muncie. We never were able to kind of connect. And then that second year when we did, man, I had so many anger issues and she had insecurity issues and we struggled. 
Later on in our marriage, Jennifer went through a huge depression. She had to go on medication. Later in our marriage, I had some huge panic and anxiety attacks, and I had to go on medication. We found in our family there was addiction. We found in our family there was mental illness. There was struggles all the time. Then once we decided to have kids, how were we going to take care of schedules and responsibilities, and what would it look like? And we had to go to counseling to try to just sit and listen and learn and talk to one another. It wasn't easy at all. Marriage is hard. Anyone that tells you, oh, marriage is so easy, you know what they are? A liar. They're a big, fat liar, or they're delusional. One of the two. I'm not sure. But it's hard stuff. And when anyone says, oh, no, 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 it's no big deal. You know, for the rest of us, no, it's difficult stuff to do. Folks, I'll tell you, your marriage will only ever be what both of you together decide it to be. Let me, say, let me say that again. Your marriage will only ever be what you both together decide it to be. You see, we live in a culture where we're often about me, not we. It's about he, not she. It's about she, not he. And I'm telling you that if you work and you fight for oneness, it's about putting the other person above yourself. And I want all marriages, all relationships to win in this place. And so I'd like to simply close by asking you this question right here. We bring up the final question. How much effort are you putting into your marriage? No one else has to answer that, just the person in your seat. But how much effort are you putting into your marriage? Are you working at it? When was the last time you wrote a love letter? When was the last time you did anything to put the other person above yourself? Now, as a church, we don't just want to have a teaching on this, but we want to give you some practical solutions to this. And so starting this Friday night, we're actually having something called Fight Club. And uh, it's not so that all these couples get in fights, okay? That's not it. But it's to fight for your marriage. And so uh, starting this Friday and throughout May, uh, on Friday nights, child care is provided, dinner is provided, so you have no reason not to go. It's like a date night, but you're working at your marriage, and you can be a part of that. And I asked them, I said, what's the only rule of Fight Club? And this is what they said, we can't tell you what happens in Fight Club. Does anyone remember that movie? I was worried I was too old. Okay, you made me feel better. And then secondly, if that's not going to work for you, at the bottom of your program, we simply have some resources. You just go to thejar.org slash marriage, or you can push on marriage on your app and uh, for our, our uh, JAR app. And there are things there, 30 days that you can say a prayer. It's written out for you as a couple. But how do you grow in the midst of that? And so we want to give you some of those practical ways. Well, hey, uh, I'm going to invite you to uh, go ahead and let's pray together. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much that you place relationships at such a high value in your created world. And for some of us, maybe we're single and we're trying to think about a relationship, maybe we're dating, maybe we're engaged, maybe we're 
married. But no matter what relationship we're in, sometimes, God, they can be really messy. And I have no doubt that maybe today there's some mess happening in relationships that are in this place. God, would you remind people, don't give up on it. Don't let it go. Work for oneness. Father, the truth is, for many of us, we think we can restore everything. We can restore our furniture. We can restore cars. We can restore our house. But God, relationships at the end of the day are only restored by you. And so I pray for your restoration to go on every marriage that is represented here. For every kind of dating relationship, God, would you bring your restoration where it's needed. And I pray right now, God, that people would say yes to your healing. That maybe there's something that they could go after to bring healing in their marriage. God, it's so hard and so we need your help. And so would you give us wisdom to use these resources that we've been given to be able to fight for oneness. Now maybe for some of you, you're sitting there and the oneness that you're not experiencing the most is a relationship with God. You've never been one with God. Or maybe you're here for the first time and there was a time in your life that you were one with God, but now you've kind of drifted away. And he's saying, come back. So today, if you're willing to say, Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I need your love. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need the promise of heaven. If that's you today, I invite you to simply pray this this prayer after me. And it's not a prayer that we just do alone. But we do together in community in one voice. And I invite you to simply repeat it after me. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Make me brand new. I believe you died and rose again so I could live with you. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, serve you, and follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, let's give a hand to everybody who said that prayer for the first time.